If you take your Bibles and then turn with me to 1 Samuel, to chapter 2, we'll continue in our study of this book of the Old Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 2, we'll study verses 22 through 36. And since it's been some time since we've been together in the study of this book, let me remind you that in chapter 2 we have the account of the abuses of the sons of Eli, the men, Hophni and Phinehas. How they not only abused the people of God, but that their method to do so was that they took of the sacrifices that were supposed to be devoted to the honor and the glory of God, and they took of it for themselves as selfish men who delighted to serve their own appetites rather than the God of heaven. And one of the last things that we read, as we studied last time, was that there was the boy, Samuel, wearing an ephod that his mother made him like a a little boy's dress-up as he anticipated the day where he would be ordained as a priest. And the text tells us that he was in the temple ministering to the Lord. The difference of an unfaithful ministry and then a faithful ministry even of a little boy. And so as we come yet again in verses 22 through 36, we consider uh, again the account of Eli and his sons and the wayward hearts of Hophni and Phinehas. So let us read the word of God, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 22 through 36. Now Eli was very old. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man... God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to those of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. 
Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your sons, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before me, before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places, that I may eat a morsel of bread. Thus far the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us understanding, O Lord, and light to darkened minds, that, Lord, we would behold in these ancient words the truth, Lord, truth that transforms and truth that convicts us of our own sin. O Lord, help us. O Lord, help us to sit under your word and to receive it. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church discipline. Not a topic to be taken lightly. It's usually not something that people joke about. It's a hard and a heavy topic, something that weighs hard upon the hearts of individuals. It's the sort of thing that causes churches to, well, split, whether it's done well or not done well. It's a hard topic altogether, but it's one that must be considered. And this evening, as we come to this passage of Scripture, we have... An ancient example of church discipline done poorly and the danger that comes from poorly done church discipline. The two things I want us to consider this evening are firstly, Eli's rebuke. Eli's rebuke. And that's in verses 22 through 26. And then from 27 through 36, the Lord's rejection. The Lord's rejection. In verse 22, we're told that Eli, the priest, was advanced in age. And that, as days went by, he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to Israel. And what follows, verse 22, all the way through, down through 26, is Eli's interaction with his sons, or the manner in which he decided to deal with the issue. Now, this is a family issue. These are his sons that he's dealing with, but this is not only an issue of disobedience in the family, but rather spiritual disobedience in the worship of God. It is a right thing to say that Eli ought not to only discipline his sons as sons, 
but discipline them as a minister to other ministers. However, I want to back away from this for just a second and say, as a parent, one of the most difficult things that I'm tasked to do is to correct one of my own family. And I'll tell you, as a pastor, and also having previously worked uh, in conjunction with a school, that very few things are more fearful than telling a mother or a father the wrongs committed by their children. People want to expect the best of them. They want to remember them whenever they seemed most innocent. The days of their infancy, before they had words to speak of rebellion. They want to think of their children as being beyond the ability to do wrong, beyond uh, the ability especially to do what another person may accuse them of. And I think Eli experiences some of this. He is an old man with grown sons. And yet, what fills his ears, but what verse 22 tells us? All the things his sons were doing to Israel, and we have one other offense that's listed here, how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. These are the sort of things that would make the heart of a father just fall, just rip you in half. It's not just that his sons were mishandling church funds, as it were, things that were supposed to be devoted to the Lord, the sacrificial fat, and then taking for themselves the meat that was appointed for the nourishment of the people of God for themselves, but that they were physically abusing and having unholy relationships with women who were serving in the house of meeting, the tent of meeting. Sometimes you'll have a commentator come to the passage and think, oh, this is just uh, the description of the women who were outside the tent and, you know, these are common prostitutes or something like this. And, And that's just the culture of the day and that's where they were and these men were involving themselves uh, with women who have, as it's been said, the earliest profession amongst mankind. But that's not the case. These women are those described as serving at the tent of meeting, right at the, as the entrance, at the entranceway. What, what were they doing? Well, the Bible's not entirely clear, but there is a basin for washing there. And there's some interaction, whether they're holding a towel for people to dry themselves after they've washed their hands, their feet, their heads, or, or are they refilling the basin for washing? It's, it's rather unclear, but it's, it's enough to simply say the women are providing ecclesiastical or spiritual service to the congregation of the people of Israel. And so the thing that Eli is hearing is this. Your sons who are ministers are having illicit extramarital affairs with women in the church. That's essentially what he's hearing regarding his sons. And I can only say that as a father, that would knock me off my feet. It would certainly uh, disturb me and break my heart. And if you look at the history of the church, where you've got oftentimes men who are followed by their sons in ministry... It seems like if, if you look closely at the history, there's usually this greater or lesser or more faithful or less faithful sort of pattern that you see through the history of the people of God. And inevitably, sometimes even great men defend their sons even whenever they really shouldn't. 
But what we have in verses 22 through 26 is the account of Eli's dealing. And what he does is he rebukes his son. Uh, Now, obviously, you're probably familiar with the language of rebuke, right? I mean, that's when you say something to someone, uh, hopefully, uh, to correct them. That's the goal of it. But a rebuke, according to church discipline, it has a a formal role. It's, It's the first act of church discipline. Where we say to you, brother or sister, uh, this is what you've done and we want you to stop because it is offensive to God. It is distracting and destructive to the body of believers and it's a sin specifically against another person. You have to stop or the Lord will judge you. It's a harsh statement. Nobody likes being rebuked. It's not comfortable. It's not fun. It's harsh. But it is, in every way, an act that has as its goal the turning of a person away from sin. After all, church discipline is not an act of anger. It's not a father that strikes the child just because he's mad. No, no, no. It's an act with the goal of correction. To turn a sinner away from their sin in repentance. And that they might run to Jesus for grace and restoration. A rebuke. Now that can be followed by many other censures that are enumerated. If you want to go and look at what our church does in the book of church order. But a rebuke. It's an act of church discipline. And I want to look at a little bit of, of, of the character of Eli's rebuke. We're going to, we're going to grade him If you'll go along with me and and really ask the question of the quality of what he's done and look at the heart of Eli as he rebukes his sons. Verse 23, and he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. And so one of the first things I want to tell you, I mean, we can look at this even from uh, verse 22 where we read that though Eli was very old, he kept hearing all that his sons were doing, that Eli's rebuke was untimely. It was untimely. Again, the testimony is that he had been hearing. This isn't news. He had heard the multitude of their offenses. Not only just directly... Uh, from the offended, but, but by the whole reputation of the people of God. It was coming back to him in a great loop. And we have the question that we might ask, why is Eli slow in correcting his sons? Why doesn't the rebuke come right after the offense? Did he know it in the time? I, I don't know. But I do know that after the first hearing of their offense to the people of God, he didn't act. Because what we read is that he kept hearing. And even then when he does come to speak to them in verse 23, he's saying, I'm hearing of your evil dealings from all the people. It's untimely. You see, there's an important aspect to a rebuke. It must be timely. It has to be in response to the sin that is made known. Why? To stop further sin. It's supposed to be a harsh statement to put people in their place and as if if to, to slam on the brakes to stop 
further growth and further offense and further damage to other people and between the person who is offending and the God of heaven. It's to put things in a better state. So a rebuke must be timely and Eli's rebuke was not timely. Not only that, we go on and in verse 23 we read that it lacked severity. Let's look and I'll explain what I mean. Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, verse 24, it is no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. It's almost like he's timid, right? He comes to his sons and he doesn't say, I heard that you did this thing. But rather... Why do you do such things? It lacks specificity. It really has, well, as one commentator said, the posture of cowardice. Instead of listing the things that his sons were doing in the taking of the fat, in the taking of an additional portion of raw meat from the people of God, in the taking of these women who were not their wives, but rather servants in the tent of meeting. No, he doesn't do any of that. Instead, he just... As a general rebuke, and why do you do such things? I hear of the evil dealings rather than holding the sin right back to their face. Why is that important? Well, it's because sin is not just offensive to God, but it's offensive before the face of men. You ever heard of something that somebody did and you were offended by it? Well, in much the same way, our sins ought to, in times, be held back to us. So that we can simply see them. So that we can be offended by the things that we have committed against God. Yeah, sin can even be offensive to the person who is doing it. And so I just think whenever I read this that his rebuke lacks severity. It almost has no teeth. It's too broad. It has no backbone. And then you also go to verse 24 and you see another characteristic. That his rebuke arose out of a concern for scandal rather than a concern for good. Now some people say, well, Pastor, I don't know if that's really the case, but, but read this with me. Because as he recounts to them the reason why he's even speaking to them, he says, No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. He doesn't come and speak to them about the sin. He doesn't talk about the offense. He doesn't talk to them about uh, what it's done to other people or how unholy or unrighteous or ungodly it is. He just says it's not good. People are talking about you. The family reputation is tarnished. The ministerial reputation is tarnished. It's not a good thing. People are talking bad about you and about me. It's a rebuke that arose out of a concern for scandal. I think that at least gives us some depiction of why his acting wasn't timely. He was hoping to just sweep it under the rug. I'm not sure. He just didn't want a scandal. It was easier not to confront the two men who had grown up as children in his household than to deal with their sins in a right fashion and to call them out for the wrong that they had done and the effect that it has had on the people of God and even toward the God of heaven. 
In verse uh, 25, I do think we have a, a right emphasis. It's not as if Eli, as a minister, completely botched the whole rebuke that he brought to his sons. I think here he, he rightly condemns the seriousness of their sins. In verse 25, I think this is really the thing that has the most teeth in his rebuke. It's the thing that's most shocking. He says, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Now in the external, and especially as Christians, we say, well, of course, we know who can intercede for a man between Uh, men who have sinned against the Lord and the Lord himself, the righteous God of heaven. There's only one. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. But as I read about this and studied even what other commentators have said regarding it, one of the things that they're touching upon is the character of their sin in that they are themselves ministers. Not only that they're ministers, they're priests. And what do priests do? Well, the primary interaction that a priest has with God's people uh, and God is that he is a mediator. That's his priestly duty. He is an intercessor. He's the one that goes and makes sacrifices and the work of atonement so that the blood might satisfy the just character of the law of God. And so when you understand it under this, it's as if Samuel or Eli is saying uh, to his sons that they would answer for these abuses because as ministers, as those who are intercessors between God and man, they themselves had corrupted the ministry. Who is it that then can intercede for you? You're corrupt priests. You're men not equipped, not capable, capable to stand for yourselves before the face of God. It's pretty serious. Who can help you? Who can help you, priest? Not looking toward the boy who would come after, the person, Samuel, who will be a good priest. I think in some measure anticipating the coming of the greater priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely and certainly the case with the, uh, with the rejection of the house of Eli and then the promise of the faithful priest who will come and who will do according to what is in the heart and the mind of God. That's certainly speaking to Jesus Christ, the final and great high priest amongst the people of God. But this is a serious thing. And it is the reality that a ministerial sin has a higher accountability. We're held to account for everything we do, even in a different fashion than if we were simply lay people. But the whole question about the rebuke that Eli brings to his sons is, is it successful? The answer is here in the scriptures. No. Look at it in verse 25. But they would not listen to the voice of their father. 
It just bounced off. They were men who had hardened hearts. The text tells us that it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. But also the rebuke itself, it it was almost half-hearted. It didn't have specificity. It wasn't done even in the right fashion or in the right spirit. There is a sense where I just commiserate with the Father and simply say, I hope, Lord willing, that I never, ever, ever am engaged in church discipline against my sons. It's hard enough against the people in the pews and the circumstances that in seven years of ministry I've had to be involved in. But your sons, it's painful. It's terrible. But as a father, he should have in every way brought a rebuke for the sake of the glory of God, the good of God's people, and the reclamation of his sinning sons. He wasn't successful. And as we're about to read in just a moment, that had a horrible effect. This isn't a point of the sermon. It almost should be its own point, but it's only one verse. Look at verse 26. You have the bad character of Hophni and Phinehas. The weak character of Eli, the big story of the scandal of the unfaithfulness of a false ministry. And then in verse 26, yet again, just one verse, just one scant mention of the faithful young minister. And it reads this way. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Why is this here? Well, I think it's, it's very really to say that the Lord will not be without a faithful remnant. His promise, even to the priesthood, his promise and his covenant that he made with the Levites would not entirely pass away. Just because of an unfaithful group, it isn't as if the Lord would be caught a liar, that his promises would fall to the earth. No. The Lord's word is yes and amen. He does keep his promises. And the thing that he began with this promised child submitted to the Lord, Samuel continues even here in verse 26 as he grows in stature and favor with the Lord and with men. The Lord is going to redeem this situation. Better days are coming. This is, as it were, a, a verse of encouragement. It's almost like it's saying, keep reading. Don't close the book. Don't grow discouraged because of the faithlessness of some men. All men are not faithless. Then in verses 27 through 36, we have the Lord's rejection of the household of Eli. The failed rebuke has already been, and now in verse 27, the great result, the rejection We read in verse 27, And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said. Now what are those the words of? A prophet. This is an Old Testament way of speaking of a prophet of God. A man of God came to Eli and he says explicitly this, Thus saith the Lord, who can say that? but a man who is a prophet. It's as if this man is saying everything that comes after these words is directly inspired from the mouth of the God of heaven. And then this is the message. 
Did I, indeed, reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Well, the answer is, yes, Lord. Yes, you did. And so the first word of the prophet is a a rehashing or a revisitation of the grace of God to this specific family, the family of Levi, the family of Aaron, and the establishment of the household of priests. It's as if the Lord is saying, have I not been good to you? Have I not been excessively gracious to you? And you go on, and in verse 28, he continues in this fashion. Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? To go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. It's the Lord saying, I've been good to you. I delivered you. I sanctified you and set you apart for a spiritual task. I had fellowship with you. And you had fellowship with me. And I always gave to you all that was necessary. Always, always. Again, it's a restatement of the faithfulness of God. So that in verse 29, the contrast is made more clear. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded? And then here's the worst. And honor your sons above me. By fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Did you read that? Did you hear it? The Lord is putting a rebuke right to the heart. What's their offense? What's Eli's offense? And the offense of the sons together with their father Eli. The scorning of the sacrifices and the offerings of God. What does that even mean? They took what only belonged to him and decided that it would belong to themselves. They were stealing from God. Scorning his sacrifices. They themselves were seeking to be satisfied with that which is only supposed to be intended for the satisfaction of God. And he goes on and says, and you honor your sons above me. Isn't that the issue? I mean, isn't that somewhere right at the very depth, at the very heart of why Eli's rebuke is kind of soft? He's concerned with his sons. He wants them to remain in the place of power, remain in the place of ordained ministry, not to be removed as they ought to be, not to be offended as they ought to be because of their own sins. He'd rather they continue to wear ephods, they continue to wear turbans and breastplate, and to go in and out in the ceremonial procession, yet with their hearts and with their actions, profaning the very sacrifices they make before the Lord. He would rather them look good before men than God being exalted over them. It's a significant issue. Now here is a rebuke written rightly, enumerating the issues, laying them bare so that they could hear and so they could see. 
Verse 30. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me, but now declares the Lord, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. He's saying, you've run away from me. You don't honor me. Why would I honor you if you don't honor me? If you profane me and profane everything that I'm about in the worship of the Lord of heaven, why should I bless you? You see, there is a rejection happening. These are men not worthy of the promise that the Lord has given to them. And then in verse 31, he goes on, and what we have is a curse being read against them. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. That's pretty hard. I'm going to cut down the young men of your line in their youth, much before their days have been fully exhausted according to men. He says, then in distress you will look on with an envious eye at all the prosperity that I have bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out and to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And then goes on in verse 34. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. That's very specific. To whom? To Eli. It's going to be a sign for him of the offense that they have caused. It shall be a sign to you that both of them shall die on the same day. Rejection. A curse rendered against a people intended to be blessed. Why? Because they had hardened their hearts and had begun to hate the Lord and take what ought to have only been the Lord's rightful belonging for themselves. They didn't heed the word. They didn't turn from sin. And so what happened? They're at odds with God. Their sin separated them from Him and from the fullness of His mercies. Rejection. If you want to think of it in these terms, this is almost like an Old Testament form of excommunication. You're going to be put outside. You're going to be put at a distance because of the thing that you've done with a hard heart and the thing that your sons did not turn from and that you hadn't the heart to call them to turn back from. But yet again, even in the rejection, even in the hard language of the descent of the Levitical priesthood that you'll see unfold. Yes, you'll see in uh, chapter 4 the the death of both Hophni and Phinehas before the eyes of Eli. Yes, on the same day just as it has been prophesied at the hands of the Philistines who then came and even also captured the Ark of the Covenant. But there is this progressive waywardness that persists in the house of the Levitical priesthood, ultimately seeing a repeat again and again of faithless priests who wear all of the adornment of priests who yet have no heart toward the Lord. But even in the midst of that, 
verse 35. In case you haven't heard enough of the bad news, here's the good news. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he will go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come and implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. And he shall say, and shall say, please put me in one of the priests' place that I may eat a morsel of bread. Most directly, there is this little boy who's going to grow up who's going to replace this wicked line of Levitical priest, who's going to do rightly, who's going to be used greatly of God, who's going to hear of the voice of the Lord and bring uh, wonderful words of calling and vocation and ministry to the people of Israel, Uh, a boy who's going to be the one who establishes and sets up the kingdom of God according to the commands of God. But this isn't only about him. There's only a portion of this that could even directly apply to him. This is a bigger promise uh, than Samuel, isn't it? Of course it is. I mean, it's a right thing to think. I mean, he's a child of promise. Samuel is. He's given to a mother that prays for him, of course. And also, she gives him back to the Lord. You could say, in verse 35, that yeah, he was raised up uh, by the Lord. But in the most sincere sense, this looks far into the future. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. Who knows the heart and the mind of God except for the Son of God? Who can say, if you have seen me, you have also seen the Father? This looks to the coming Christ. Absolutely it does. Who else could it be said of of, of, of any of their work to, to encompass all of these things. I will build him a sure house. What does this even mean? It means a house that cannot crumble. You know the one upon which Christ is the cornerstone? The church that shall never be corrupted, that shall never be lost. A sure house. A legacy that cannot die out with a people who, if they are of the house of Christ, enjoy the promise of eternal life. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Who? Who? Can do anything forever. Unless he be God in the flesh. So this passage, though, it does have reference In a measure, to Samuel, it is a much bigger promise. Just as the curse was much bigger than even Hophni and Phinehas and Eli. The span of history that's spoken of here is significant. And I think it's one of the great themes that we'll see in coming uh, weeks and months in the book of 1 Samuel and then subsequently 2 Samuel. That the great thing is, is that though Samuel's a good priest... There's always the hope that there is an even greater priest to come. This is only the shadow of the one that will be the fulfillment of it all, the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures, Lord, how they teach us. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to have gained some helpful uh, teaching this evening. Oh, Lord, that... 
Uh, we will have been a people who have studied your word in sincerity, O oh Lord, and that you will uh, cause us uh, to be people who would tremble before you. O oh Lord, people who will delight in your glory. O oh Lord, people who will rejoice in your worthiness. O oh Lord, and people who will offer to you sincere praise and worship. O oh Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.